Today's podcast is brought to you by Searchlight Pictures, presenting Poor Things, the brilliant new comedy from director Yorgos Lathamos. Poor Things is an incredible evolutionary tale of Bella Baxter, a young woman brought to life by the brilliant and unorthodox scientist Dr. Goodwin Baxter, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, Willem Dafoe, Rami Youssef, and Jared Carmichael. One of the best-reviewed films of the year and winner of the Golden Lion for Best Film at the Venice International Film Festival, Variety calls Poor Things the best film of the year, now nominated for seven Golden Globes and three Critics' Choice Awards, including Best Picture, for your consideration in all categories. Okay, Trevor, and I'm going to do a take two here, too. The brilliant new comedy from director Yorgos Lathamos. From Yorgos Lathamos. Poor Things is an incredible evolutionary tale of Bella Baxter, a young woman brought to life by the brilliant and unorthodox scientist Dr. Goodwin Baxter, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, Willem Dafoe, Rami Youssef, and Jared Carmichael. It's one of the best-reviewed films of the year and winner of the Golden Lion for Best Film at the Venice International Film Festival. Variety calls Poor Things the best film of the year. It's now nominated for seven Golden Globes and 13 Critics' Choice Awards, including Best Picture, and it's for your consideration in all categories. Hi, and welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. I'm Chris O'Fall, Executive Editor of Craft and Special Projects at IndieWire. And today, my guest is writer-director Peter Son, whose film uh, Elemental, it's a great Pixar film from earlier this year and is now on Disney+. Plus. Um, Peter's been with Pixar for multiple decades. Uh, he's been in the animation department. He's helped write. He's helped direct. He's been the voices of some of your favorite characters. Uh, so he's really been in part of that uh, Pixar ecosystem, and it was really interesting to get to talk soup to nuts to him in terms of how one of these projects evolved, especially something as such a personal project for him as Elemental. It was also really interesting to hear him talk about how this film had its second life. It was first advertised as being a little bit of a box office disappointment, and then by the end of the summer, it was seen as a hit, which is something that I think is very revealing of our current ecosystem in terms of how people are finding films with word of mouth. Anyways, I hope you enjoy this conversation and I uh, hope you're enjoying your holidays as well. I'm always fascinated by process as it comes to uh, Pixar. So, I, I, you know, I, before we even get into into Elemental, I, you've been with them for a while, right? Could you could we talk a little bit about because the different roles and kind of, you know, now you're a very successful director, but you've you've played a lot of different roles there, kind of coming up with with the studio, right? Yeah, um, yeah. It's been 23 years. Uh, I I never thought I'd be anywhere this long. Um, uh, but I started in the um, as a sketch artist on Finding Nemo in 2000, and uh, um, from there, um, Andrew gave me a chance in story, and so I, I went into the story department on that film as well. And so I think that was the first sort of job where I did two jobs on the same show before, and then from there, uh, um, uh, on Incredibles and the rest of the and the and films from that point, it was just doing different jobs on a film. Uh, uh, I, I got to do animation on Incredibles as art and story, and then some voice work, and uh, it was just bouncing around through up through all these movies till now, um, and then and then getting these lucky chances to direct something. And one thing I love about over there is 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 that idea that you're involved in, like that this idea that the animation and story, <laughs> you know, or the technology even it it. it 
they, I mean, obviously there's people with expertise and different ones and specialties, but really there is kind of a hand in hand aspect to that over there. Right. If you mean but like the, how collaborative uh, the departments are together. Yes. And uh, um, uh, every show is different um, in terms of how the production brings these teams together. Um, for example, Elemental was very different just because we have new characters and that forced a different type of collaboration between departments. But I would say uh, more often than not, it is uh, a handshake uh, between all the departments. This is one that obviously, when, when did the, this one probably, when did it originate? Like how long ago was it? Um, like did, and did you get involved with it? And so it was seven years ago. Um, seven. Okay. And, uh, um, and what's, I apologize, Peter, what's the kernel? What's the, like, what's the starting point for something like this one? Um, so it's a really strange one. The, the usual process here is to, um, you, you're asked to start developing something and then they ask for about three ideas and, uh, you pitch the three ideas and one is selected to move on. Um, I, I had been asked to start developing after the good dinosaur and, um, I went to this press event, Chris, it was a, a, a strange thing. I, I was, I was born in the Bronx. And so the Bronx literally called the city, the Bronx called and said, they'd like to, uh, celebrate the arts. Uh, and since you're from here, we'd love to invite you to this event. Um, I invited my parents to it and, uh, um, uh, I went up on stage. I had a, these little note cards about some jokes I was going to do. But when I got up on stage, Chris, I'll tell, I swear to you, I saw my parents and I began to get very emotional. Um, I, I don't know if it was just their emotion that they were emanating back or just how aged that they were in the context of all these other people. Um, uh, and I began to thank them and uh, um, in this very heartfelt way. And I said, Mom, Dad, thank you for all the tremendous sacrifices you made for my brother and I to have a life here. And uh, some people were yelling in the back, like, you better thank your parents. You know, it was a really raucous sort of crowd, but uh, um, it was something that I'm, the physical act of that type of gratefulness uh, uh, sort of haunted me. And then when I got back to Pixar, friends were just asking like, how was that New York thing? That was a weird thing. And I told them that anecdote. And uh, um, my boss, when I told him, he said, hey, that's the movie you have to do. And so that sort of jumped this idea of three pitches and it just started off with this kernel of this um, uh, gesture. And uh, that was seven years ago when I had pitched that and then it started growing from there. Let's stick with story, but I then want to come back and figure out, because I know along the way as you're doing it, like the character development and the you gotta, yeah. there's so many things you have to figure out. You can't, it's not, it's not like uh, yeah. you, you write a script and then go into pre-production to shoot it. Like these things have to go hand in hand. but. Um, walk me through, because again, it's legendary, the Pixar scripting process. You know, I mean, I, there is a personal aspect to this, but that it, it's, it, it, there, it's a collaborative thing here, right? Yes. Um, uh, it is a personal thing. I never thought it would be a personal thing. Um, uh, when you talk about the process, the process that I was used to was developing a world, the characters and a story. I don't, I, I don't remember in any of the films that I'd done before where it was like from a very specific personal place. Um, as you're building it, do the personal stuff get start to grow in there and, and take root? But I was very nervous that it had started off from an anecdote about something that I was still trying to figure out and understand what it meant. And uh, um, uh, so that route was 
made me very nervous, but um, uh, I was starting to try to figure out themes and metaphors from that anecdote that could connect to worlds and characters in a story. And uh, it was just me for the, you know, the first year and a half. There was several pitches that you go through. So you have, you know, essentially like a creative brain trust that you are pitching your next sort of milestones towards. And so one of the first milestones is an outline, uh, just to talk about the process. And uh, that outline was very uh, simple in terms of like, oh, it's a, what if there's a world of elements and uh, um, in this world of elements, some elements mix and some don't. And in that, uh, I built the outline to a question of what if fire fell in love with water? What if these two, uh, the disparate elements uh, could fall in love? And uh, um, uh, that sort of was the main kernel to that outline that uh, sort of, that got approved to start to build into something else. Um, something that was that became even more personal for me as i was building that first version chris my father died it it, it came out of nowhere it surprised me and uh, um i did all the things that i thought i was supposed to do to complete that closure of my father's death and got back into work immediately and as i was building this version of the reels there was a darkness that started in there um, and so uh, as I, I got to my first reels, something had shifted. I, that, I, I only know now, you know, but at the time I didn't. And uh, so that was also a slightly unusual thing that shifted what was the normal process because uh, um, a lot of people were supporting me knowing that I was going through some kind of grief that I myself, I don't think I was conscious of. Um, but as, as I built it and showed the first set of reels, it was very dark. It was very dark and uh, um, it, it, it strayed from the outline, if that makes any sense. Meaning what I had promised in the outline, the reels differed in uh, in, in various emotional ways that I, I had to sort of find my way back. Uh, Chris, please stop me. No, 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 no. To be honest, I've seen the film a few times with the, with my kids, and this all resonates quite a bit. Having seen the film, you know, I mean, I, I watch oh, all yeah. the I watch all the films that I do on the podcast, but this one is one that I've seen yes. quite a few times recently, and it's uh, it yes. very much what you're saying resonates with 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 the people that have seen it. Yeah, I, I appreciate that, and and then so as I screened this version, um, I remember my executive producer Pete Doctor asking me, "Was this the film you always wanted to make?" And I, you know, I said, no, I didn't. I, I wanted to do something hopeful, Pete. I, and uh, um, I, I was getting lost. You know, these things take forever and you can lose objectivity. And uh, uh, Pete reminded me of something that I had pitched to him and Disney early on. Um, on top of the what if fire fell in love with water, there was this immigrant line, a first generation, second generation storyline that I had written this little thing that I said, the dad would tell the, the daughter, uh, the shop was never the dream, you were the dream. And uh, he reminded me of this line and uh, it made me very emotional because it brought me back to understanding my father and why I was doing all this. And, uh, um, you know, that version of the reels, I think I got, I, I think I got through two versions of this where the father and daughter were trying to essentially 
ruin each other's lives. They were so spiteful and they were so dark that they were sort of, it was like a gangland war between the two and uh, uh, no one enjoyed the film. It was very, very, very caustic. And uh, um, this conversation with Peter, Pete, um, brought me back to a North Star that I would solidify for myself of, you know, uh, you know, in, in terms of trying to understand our parents as people and understand these choices that they had made and what a burden that could be for uh, the next generation. And uh, um, then from there, I started building the reels, rebuilding the reels. Uh, we, you know, we tossed a lot of ideas out and installed new ones. Um, um, but, but, and, but there were tent poles that were there from the beginning that remained. Um, but it would be that until um, our first couple audience previews, uh, where you know the, the 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 our first objective audiences really connected to the movie in an emotional way, and uh, um, uh, we started. Then we got into real heavy production from there of building the movie. Talk to me about while the story's developing. What are some of the key things that need to be figured out on the animation side? I mean, I know we're going to talk about fire and water <laughs> and all and all of that, but I, I, is it is it is it character is it is it character sketches? What 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 is those? What are those things that you're doing as as this story is starting to progress? Um, I think in terms of the characters with animation, it's twofold. It is a lot of visual design work, but then there's a lot of behavioral motivation conversations that you're having. Uh, when you first get the the first, I guess, couple of supervisors or lead animation uh, members, they are testing the character, but also asking a lot of questions about, as performers, at, about what mannerisms and, and, and who these characters are. And so, there's a lot, a lot of early discussion in group settings with story people, with animators about um, the, the protagonists, um, um, Ember and Wade. And uh, because this was a love story and I wanted to push deeper than just a buddy film, um, that solution or the, it came through understanding the holes in their lives that these two would need to fill in each other uh, to sort of unify um which was sort of different than the buddy film where it was just just conflict and then they they uh, through a misunderstanding and they became friends this was trying to reach for a deeper love and uh, um that became a lot of the conversation with the animators if, if that's what you're asking it Chris. is it is and so to a certain degree part of that is 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 performance too right you're getting your voice actors are getting it's like it's it's got to be something that could be performed as well, right? And then the the physical aspects and the characteristics come out of uh, out of that. Yes. Uh, oh, yeah. You're exactly, Chris. I mean, they they you got you talked about you know a little sketch. It's so funny how coming up with characters from nowhere, how it begins. Like the the, the Ember's character was this little campfire. It's almost like a fire emoji. It, it felt like what it was, but with eyes. And there was no personality toward it. And uh, um, um, there is an act of, you know, uh, I know there's like, you know, I'm stream of conscious writing. It's there's a similar thing with drawing where you're just allowing the ink to just lead you uh, to ideas. And uh, Ember started as I was following um, the pen. Uh, it began to showcase personalities just through the fire, how passionate she was, 
how creative she was, how um, uh, you know uh, angry she could get and explosive, and then how devoted she could be. Uh, that was all starting to just form in these nascent uh, drawings. And uh, then with the writer, did it go deeper into understanding what assimilation was, what uh, uh, the first gen, second gen uh, story was. And uh, it, this was a huge collaborative effort in terms of building someone that we had never seen before. I mean, never met before. And uh, something that I'm very proud of, Chris, is that we talked to a lot of our crew members that were first and second gen, over a hundred uh, coworkers that, oh my goodness, uh, we sent a, a blasted email out to the studio if there was anyone out there that wanted to talk about their first and second gen stories. And uh, we got, you know, hundreds of emails and uh, uh, responses. And uh, so then in the next year and a half, we would progressively have meetings with one or two of these folks at a time, just hearing stories. And so many of their stories got into Ember and Ember's father and Wade, uh, but between the interracial love story and uh, um, um, some of the xenophobia that happens. Um, uh, as personal as it was for me, it was just a seed for me. And uh, um, it became very personal for the crew. And uh, um, trying to honor that became a real driver as we were developing it these characters and all of the, the different departments you're talking about. I always, I always fascinated by, and you can see it right in the opening of this film when, when the mom and dad arrive, you know, and we're experiencing through them, this, this city, you know, I, I, it's one of those things that the rules of this elemental world, <laughs> you know, it, 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 once you figure it out, like on the pack end as an audience, oh, it's obvious. It seems simple. But I, it's one of those things that it, you kind of see it as they won't travel through the city. There's a million and one decisions and things that you have to work out, right, for for it to feel like a, a real place. And I, I know that's so key to all these Pixar films, right? Yeah, I, I was envious of movies that had humans in them at a certain point <laughs> because they didn't need a lot of rules set up. I was envious of Inside Out because no one knows what emotions look like. Everyone knows what elements of fire and water look like. And uh, and so we were bound by certain logics, but we also were creating our own sort of movie logic. And uh, um, yes, you're absolutely right. Um, we had a whole version where Ember was bringing in uh, a, a new new immigrants into the city and uh, uh, how the city worked. That was our first foray into trying to understand the rules. And uh, there was a version where it was like a 20 minute opening because I thought like we had, we had to explain so much and uh, um, no one cared, but then you removed all of it. And then the next screening, everyone's like, wait, I don't understand. Can they die? Can they, and then you're like, Oh, there's some balance, obviously. Because it's it's trick because it's tricky, right? Because the thing is, obviously, we're recognizing, and even my you know my, my five year old recognizes that this is this is a metaphor for for our segregated city. You know, I live in New York City, for our segregated cities, and and for xenophobia, and and yet, and obviously, fire and water, you get it. But there's a thing here between like the bridge of what physically happens with fire, fire and water, and also making it feel of a place that we can recognize as, as our modern urban landscapes. Right. It's like, and that I don't think is a natch to make that again, you guys did it beautifully, but I don't know. I have to imagine there's a lot of things where it could not feel that way. It could feel like, you know, water just extinguishes. It. Yes. Uh, yeah. Chris, I mean, you're inside it. Yeah. Uh, 
it's you have watched it a bunch of times you really have <laughs> no the um that this balance would haunt us through every level of this movie of well, understanding what a fire culture could be or a city's culture and uh, how to have an audience connect to it and what it means to be grounded like we did try versions where they were so much more abstract and much more elemental and uh, quickly when we were screening it people would say this these are aliens this is this is a whole other planet they're on a different and so they would disconnect from the characters and uh, uh, in, a, in, a, in a way that didn't help us and so yes you're right like uh, um, how we kept pulling in like oh what we know of a city between canals and Amsterdam or Chicago uh, and what we would know of uh, places that characters um, oh, I would have their feelings echo. For me, I grew up in New York too, and um, I always took New York as an echo chamber. Like, if you were feeling happy, that city could magnify it in a way that uh, was different than other cities. And if you were lonely and sad, it could really bring you into a dark place uh, just by being around that city. And uh, trying to emotionally understand a place was what we were trying to do with the limited resources that we had in building that city. I don't mean limited. Uh, it's just that we spent so much work on the characters. We were pulling away from all the work that would be necessary for the city. And uh, um, that balance of dividing it, segregating it, but also trying to uh, have it represent identities uh, was our answer to um, uh, finding that, or at least in my point of view, a, a grounded way for the audience to connect to. Could you give an example of a breakthrough? Because I think some of the things that here is, is that in retrospect, when you're on the audience side, when you do it well, it seems obvious. You know, sometimes these things seem obvious because you found the simple solution that does it. But my guess is that, you know, it, well, I know this for a fact, sometimes it takes a thousand of these ideas for one to finally do it. Could you give an example of something that was a real breakthrough in terms of figuring out how to make that connection? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it was uh, what a hyphenated identity was. Um, I remember being asked when I was in Korea, if uh, from a Korean person asking me, do you think you're Korean? And uh, um, I am in makeup 100% Korean because of my parents, but uh, um, I, I said, no, I'm, I'm Korean-American because I, I grew up in America and I was born there. And uh, that is part of my identity. And uh, um, understanding what Ember would be because she was born in the city, uh, what Fireland was and what that fire district would be and what Element City was, uh, and splitting those two pieces of, of this world uh, was the breakthrough to understand like, oh, Ember's identity right now is red, Fireland. She goes into the city, which is blue, but at the end of the movie, she would become purple. And that these two cities would become her identity. Uh, and so tried to support that look uh, uh, became a theme for us. This sort of what a hearth and home would be in Fireland. Oh yeah, so for fire people, a hearth would be bricks and porcelain and all these things uh, that we would connect to uh, as humans and what, what what we do with fire. And then for Element City itself, although there are other um, uh, disparate communities in there, we try to homogenize it into this other uh, one identity. And uh, as so the, from there, 
some tentpoles arose of, oh, so we need to know when Ember's in, in the beginning of the movie, this is where she's at along her arc. But then as she's discovering Wade, she's also discovering a city at the same time. And the montage of them falling in love begins to showcase her connection to a city that she was a, a very wary of. But then as they connect uh, and touch hands for the first time, which became another tentpole, uh, it's this very purpley sort of mix of, and we pull the camera away to showcase she's in the heart of the city, that has be she's become a part of that city. And, uh, um, and then she regresses and rejects it, but then ultimately at the end discovers this new piece of her. Uh, but that was the breakthrough that helped us understand what we needed to do with this, with the, the world. So, so I, I think we should talk about fire and water, which are very hard. You know, I mean, I know there's always a challenge with these movies, but I mean, yeah, I mean, first, I mean, at a very basic level, um, just capturing them and figuring out what their worlds look like in an animated Pixar world. But then the fact that you're also going to, I mean, eventually you have to figure out what a romance and a relationship between the two is. Um, I mean, it's just fire and water are beautiful, but they're also very hard. I, you know, they're amorphous things, right? Yeah. Um, I, I was very naive going into this, Chris. Uh, I, I felt like I had found an, a niche that hadn't been explored with a, with a animated character. Um, uh, and so I got very excited early on with these really crude drawings that I was doing. Um, in those explorations, it ran the gamut. So the first Ember and Wade were very much more like superheroes, I would say, that they would be throwing their fire and their elements around in a much more physical way. And uh, as I was pitching this stuff, no one cared about it. No one here at the studio was like, ah, I feel like I've seen that before. Feels like Frozone and uh, with, with, with Wade throwing water like that. And uh, um, as I was exploring the love story, uh, um, I was on break boarding these two hands touching and the boiling started and then the sort of the, the, the fires roiling happened. And uh, it connected me to um, a different kind of emotion of like what goosebumps would be when you're falling in love with someone and making physical contact, what it means to be vulnerable and then going into candlelight. And so a lot of these ideas started to form in paper. And uh, that's when technical crews came on to go to try to understand like, Oh, so the, the elements are being used to reflect their emotional states. And it's like, yes. And uh, um, uh, then they said, well, I, we don't know if we can do any of that because we don't know if we can even get a character as an effect through an entire movie. Peter, what you're pitching means every shot in this film is an effect. And um, that is, we don't have a pipeline for that at all. We, you know, we have, you know, uh, some of our movies have, you know, big effects in them, but it's only a portion of the movie. It's not the whole thing. And so that was a, uh, that before we could even get to the emotional side of it, that was the big um, fear. Um, um, not for my bosses, the fear was, could we even look at a face and fall in love with it? That was fire. Um, um, one of my producer, um, uh, Jim Morris, who runs the studio, worked on Backdraft and he told me of these tests where they had, I don't know if you knew this, but there was like a creature in Backdraft that was like a fire creature that they had done these tests for and uh, how terrifying it was. And uh, I was like, no, 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 the drawings are meant to be very caricatured. We, I, I'm telling you, we'll be able to control it. 
our first tests that we had done with Ember, where they just turned on the fire simulations, were terrifying, Chris. Uh, he, the, he, she looked like, you know, the, you know, Lord of the Rings, like Balrog. Like it was like the burning eyes and this lava, like it was so scary. And uh, um, immediately what was, said, what was said was that like controlling any sort of simulation is probably some of the hardest effects that you can do. And uh, um, I became very nervous at that point uh, because we had a limited budget and limited time. And, uh, um, um, but the, the, the process was to do what we called sprints. Get a bunch of people on and do every three weeks, try a different path to get to uh, um, a look. And uh, we did that for a good year until we finally found something that um, uh, could hold features in it, be, be um, busy enough to feel like fire, not be too realistic to be scary, but not to be too graphic where you couldn't feel the heat or the, 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 the sort of the immersive elements of it. But then that was still fire. That's, you know, and uh, there was this new technology that was created for it uh, um, called NST. It was a paper that was written at Disney Zurich that one of our technical artists, Paul Kanyuk, had discovered and uh, said, this could be our option. And so what it does is that it takes busy fire and uh, um, you, you feed it a graphic shape. For example, like a maple leaf shape. Um, uh, and uh, all of a sudden the fire will, it's not just carving in two dimensions, maple leaves out of the fire, it's carving it in 3D so that when you could turn the character, it'll, it'll always uh, stay at those, you know, you, you'll see it, control it. And uh, um, when he first turned that on, he said, we can only get one close-up though. That's all we've got the rendering power for. Uh, and that was like one close-up. This is a love story, you know? And uh, he's like, well, we're working on optimizing it. And then months later, the working with the, the the research group, they would get like, you can get, you know, five. And uh, we were headed toward, you know, layout and production. And it's like, wow, we're, we're never going to be able to do this. And uh, and then uh, surely, slowly but surely, they optimized it. So like, we can get all of Ember, but we can't get the family. Oh, we can get all the family now. And right, you know, as we were finishing the movie, we can get all these background characters. So we were just saving shots all the way to the end to get that done. And that was just fire. And uh, um, when we got to water, I this was where my true naivete lived. It was, I had no idea how uh, difficult water was to control. Um, it is the hardest, I, will, I can say with full-throated, <laughs> heartfelt water is the hardest effect. Um, just in the sheer fact of refractions and reflections, you know, Ember has no, it has no shadows on her. She is a source of light. So she's in that world easier to deal with in a shot where if you put any kind of water in a lighting situation of a basement, they, it disappears. It goes black. If you bring it outside to broad daylight, it'll blow out the lens. Like everything, and you know, and uh, water is clear. Water is not blue, uh, you know, and uh, um, uh, seeing all these features in every one of these shots, um, and having to manipulate that to the degree that we did um, uh, was a nightmare. Wade uh, was very difficult all the way to the end. Uh, I'm I'm so impressed with what the animators and the the technical directors did to control all of this. Like you know, there would be times where the bubbles slow down and he would look like a Jello guy. There would be lighting situations where he would just turn into Casper the friendly ghost. Every scene and every shot 
required uh, a manipulation, you know, um, that was, you know, down to the wire. Um, but, um, uh, you know, there was, there was no pipeline. And now that we have a pipeline, you know, like, Oh, it'd be great to reuse these characters again. Because, <laughs> you know, but I, I am curious if then the, the next iteration of this is then also figuring out the relation, you know, because they're trying to in the story, trying to figure out how as they're falling in love, how to be together. Like even what what like the, the clearly it's a metaphor for other aspects, but it's like there's there's like a the, the, trying to even figure out what water and, and fire being in love is something that is a is like an obstacle in their way and i i have to assume that that's kind of the, also to a certain degree the next um iteration of of the problem you're outlining now that you have to creatively solve right yeah i mean like uh, on a design sense you know you're pointing to or i think you're asking to you know they could feel very disparate and and because it is a love story to also envision a world where they could be together as as impossible as it may seem in the beginning, I felt like as for my favorite movies, I also have a when you're watching a film, like you do have hope for them. Like oh, I do hope these two get together, and uh, um, knowing that there had to be some unifying things between them so that they felt like they belonged in the same world at least. You know, like there there were there could there were designs where Wade felt like so alien that he's from a different movie. You know, and. Uh, so there was a lot of graphic qualities that we used to bring them together. You know, one of them being um, uh, Ember has a, a line work around her flames and Wade has a meniscus around his water. And that was one step that sort of, oh, they do belong in the same world, even though they're so different. Um, and the same would go for their characters. And uh, um, look, uh, I in terms of what the xenophobia was growing up, so much of my identity growing up in New York became about my skin color and my and my and my uh, culture and um, this idea of um, what it takes to see beyond that became so simple to me and uh, it, it clicked into this relationship very quickly is the idea of empathy and um, compassion and uh, as we are we're building these characters Ember because of her experience in with xenophobia grew a wall around her and uh it's and it's it's part of my identity that i remember you have to deal with some of that stuff in a way that um in, in where you have to protect yourself as well and um, um that that became very interesting when placed against the character who was transparent and couldn't hide his emotions and uh and the only way that this guy could connect was emotionally was through um, empathy and compassion. And uh, um, that became sort of the breakthrough to understand the designs, the, 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 what the effects would be doing it within them to, to unify them and the story work to, to, to finally understand when Ember feels safe enough to understand her temper and the burden that she's dealing with and in that sense also that external is you know you're you were talking about a very personal internal thing that i think is universal for for a lot of people to externalize that in the form of fire and water and to figure that it's it's just so power you know it's like the 
I think everybody can understand what you just said, but to then experience, you know, experience it through this, it's, it's the power of animation to a certain degree. You know? Yeah. That, I, that, you know, I thank you. That it is, it is the thing we were striving for is could an audience understand what both of these characters were going through just with their elements like the, you know, like Andrew Stanton, um, the first director I worked with here always preached, like you should be able to feel all of this without the dialogue, but just voluming it down, turning all the dialogue off. And, uh, so much of the the joy of this type of animation was trying to do that. And the animators, they saw beyond what I could see in terms of trying to get those behaviors to that place. And uh, um, yeah, yeah, it was it was a main driver. Wanted to to end with something. Normally, I wouldn't ask a director this just because uh, but because you've been with Pixar so long and seen so many films be released. You know, you know, because honestly, I don't know. Uh, filmmakers are so sensitive to what happens in release and and whatnot. So it's it's it, it, that's why I would avoid. But you've just seen so many Pixar films be released, and and what's happened with this one? And maybe we've done a bad job reporting on. Maybe we didn't really capture the true story of what happened when it was released. But there is something with this one, right? That it. It, it kept growing and growing, right? Which is, it was a little bit of a different pattern, successful or unsuccessful of a lot of other Pixar films to a certain degree, right? Yes, absolutely. And uh, yeah, I, and I have no problem talking about it. I mean, it was it was challenging in the beginning to, uh, you know, as, as, as hard as it was to hear people being negative about the film, sometimes without even seeing the film, you know? And, uh, uh, um, uh, um, but as time went on and I started trying to figure out like, oh, how, wh why is this film not connecting? You know, where did I go? Uh, uh, you know, what was it about that, you know, disconnected? And uh, there's so many variables that it's so, you know, looking back on it now, it's, there's so many variables, you know, to, to try to pick apart, you know, like if every, if anyone had the answers, then every movie would be a hit, you know, but um, uh, the, but this idea of word of mouth, uh, Chris, uh, was something that became very emotional for me. Um, um, uh, I, I started getting emails about like, oh, it's hanging in this country. It's, oh, you know, like domestically, it's still hanging in there. People are going now. And uh, I didn't know what it meant. I, I, maybe I was just sort of still, tr still in that sort of challenging phase of trying to understand what was going on. But as it was growing, I think the news of Korea sort of popped through my, you know, um, my, my trying to understand all this. And uh, um, the word of mouth started to redefine itself for me. It became sort of a fuel that was lifting the movie in a way that um, meant that the movie was connecting. I think that's, I guess, an obvious statement to say. But well, I, I think it, I think maybe one of the things that you're getting at is these Pixar releases are major releases that 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 obviously play into that tentpole big, you know, big thing. And and I think that maybe in the world that we're living in, um, that model is is in some cases what can break through or cut through even with a Pixar film. 
maybe there is a thing here with word of mouth and that kind of thing in this world of a million of attention and thing like that, 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 that's something we might need to take into account instead of this constant diminishing returns of like, you know, you're already, you're already planning on losing 40% after the first week, you know, and, 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 and that it wasn't that long ago that even big releases needed, needed time and, and, and needed that word of mouth component not just small films like the ones that we often write about. Yes, yes. And I really appreciate that. I, I, I think you're absolutely right. And the idea that Pixar still has value to audiences. It, 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 you know, there were so many connections to that word of mouth that were uplifting in that way. And, you know, I got an email from someone saying, because it was doing so well in Korea, that your parents were looking down on you. So I started seeing it in a, in a very different way, you know, and... Uh, because my mom would die at the end of production, you know, so I lost both my parents during this thing. And oh, so, geez. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. I just, just to talk about the 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 rise of it and its ultimate sort of success in that world, um, uh, that it would do so well there, uh, meant the world to me, you know. And uh, now that it's on Disney Plus, the 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 people that have come up to me and have reached through social media. Uh, connecting to this first generation, second generation love story um, has been overwhelming. It really has. And uh, the, the the work that you spend, you know, so much of your life doing, all you want to do is to connect. And uh, um, um, that is the thing that this word of mouth has grown in me that uh, um, I'll, I'll never lose, you know. I'll never forget. All right. Well, Peter, thank you so much for your time and congratulations on the movie and and, and it's 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 continued success because it is it is one that keeps growing. Thank you, Chris. Um, I really appreciate it. I really do.